This podcast has been made possible by Planful and U.S. Bank. This is episode 596. This is a, a company that's been growing at a healthy clip. And so we had ambitions to, you know, develop additional products, develop additional features in our SaaS platform to, to make us even more differentiated than, you know, our competitors and make us more appealing for big clients. And with this uh, COVID crisis right now, it's been a little bit more like, all right, what are the core things that we really have to do excellently right now? Realizing that investment's going to be more predicated on what we can afford than kind of this growth trajectory that we had expected for this year. Hi, it's Jack Sweeney. On today's show, we speak to John Thieler, CFO of Aveta, a SaaS software developer helping companies manage their supply chain risk. Certainly an area that is only becoming more top of mind in 2020 in this new environment we are living in, and it will no doubt uh, remain top of mind post-2020. John built his career in the Bay Area and is part of that new class of CFOs uh, we like to refer to as being customer-centric or practicing customer-centric finance. The more we get to uh, learn the mindset of finance leaders like John, uh, I think it's very revealing to uh, the future of finance. Also, we were thrilled that John uh, shared with us that his father was a CFO, allowed us the opportunity to ask him to reflect more on the habits and uh, what happens on the home front. Uh, Again, uh, uh, the more things change, the more they stay the same. Finance leaders are disciplined, time conscious, uh, always thinking sort of about the next uh, challenge and goal, not only uh, for themselves, but their their children, their families, and how an awesome uh, work ethic is handed down. Uh, Our discussion with CFO John Thieler of Aveta begins after this. In an ever-changing world, it can be tough to keep up with the latest FP&A trends and innovations that keep you ahead of the game. Luckily, there's a podcast for that. Tune in to Being Planful, the podcast for finance leaders and planning experts, and stay in the know about what's happening in planning and forecasting. Guests like influencer Chris Ortega, Boston Red Sox CFO Tim Zhu, and Brian Lapidus of AFP will keep you up to speed on how you can put finance in the driver's seat this year. Find the full episodes at beingplanful.com or wherever you get your podcasts. P.S. Think you might make a great guest on the show? Shoot host Rowan Tonkin an email at beingplanful.com at planful.com.
So hello, we're speaking to John Thieler, CFO of Aveda. John, welcome. Hi, Jack. Uh, pleased to be with you. I appreciate uh, the invitation. Not at all, John. We've been looking forward to speaking to you. Aveda is a SaaS developer specializing in supply chain risk management, something uh, that's uh, very quickly become top of mind for many businesses. So we look forward to uh, talking to you about your offerings and uh, the opportunity, clearly, that uh, is maturing out there. But first, we begin where we always do, which is to ask our guest to look back for us and share with us some of those experiences they feel prepared them for a finance leadership role. What comes to mind for you? Well, Jack, um, for me, it goes back even to my childhood. My father was a CFO, um, and and so I had firsthand views of that. And you know, growing up with a CFO as your father, you learn pretty early on how to manage your money, uh, make decisions around spending. Um, you know, he would always tell me I had to earn my spot every day. Not necessarily in the family, but you know, I had a job from the time. Shoot, I can't hardly remember even mowing lawns when I was young to delivering papers back when that was a thing, um, working in, you know, a convenience store, stocking shelves, cleaning, you know, all, all the things that you do growing up to, you know, my dad didn't really tolerate someone just sitting there and, and uh, draining the cash coffers. If I wanted to spend money, I had to earn it. And then he would talk to me about how to do it. And, you know, even like my first experience buying a car, I wanted to you know, I don't know how much detail you want here, but I was looking at getting a uh, Honda CRX, which is this little two-door kind of sporty little car. And um, he was like, well, that's not a very practical choice. And after going through kind of pros and cons of, of things like that, I ended up getting uh, a four-door Civic, which, you know, isn't nearly as cool when you're, you know, 20 something, I guess was it was the first car I owned personally, but turned out, you know, looking back on it, it was a much more logical and practical choice in, in, in that time frame of my life than the, you know, two door sporty car. But, you know, I, I, I want to interrupt because this is just too good an opportunity to, to ask a question to you. Now we, we've had a few guests, number of guests who have uh, shared that they have a family member who was also a CFO, clearly usually a husband and wife pairing. Uh, there have been uh, maybe one or two who pointed out that their father uh, was a CFO. Uh, but I'm curious, when you think back to your father now and how he managed his life, uh, I mean, do you think about how disciplined he was in terms of how he uh, used his time? It, it, and that's a, like a discipline. Many finance leaders will tell us that all along they had this, it was always about managing time for them. As you look back as as the son of a CFO, were you very aware that your dad was on a sort of a tight clock or? A- you know, he wasn't the CFO my entire uh, childhood. I'm the oldest, but, you know, he, he was moving his way kind of through the finance uh, ranks as, you know, as I grew up. And, 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 you know, I know he, you know, he was very disciplined, you know, productivity was like my dad's watch cry. Like even today in his retirement, there are times where it's like, I have to, you know, this is me telling him, dad, you can slow down. It's okay. You don't always have to be like allocating your time efficiently and, and getting something done. Um, you know, it, it's, it's, it's a odd thing to be telling your parents that way, but you know, he was always driving me, the whole family to be, you know, active and productive and using our time wisely. So, um, for me, the, uh, the idea of being a finance guy, because finance people have to earn 
their keep every day, right? I mean, we're not producing revenue. We're not developing a product. We're not uh, supporting the product or making the product. We are there to help the people that do all those things do those things as efficiently and logically and effectively as possible. And so if we're not thinking, behaving that way on our own with, with what we do with our own resources, you know, they won't fully respect what we have to say. And if we're using our time wisely in the way that we're providing that support, um, they will actually pull us in more and hold us closer to the decision-making rather than, you know, holding us at arm's length and looking at us as a roadblock to success. So, um, you know, I think that operationally, I, you know, I think of the CFO role and I kind of break it into three uh, buckets. There's the operational side of being a CFO. There's the leadership side of being a CFO. And then there's the executive side of being a CFO. And, um, you know, I don't know if you want me to go into each one of those, but, you know, from the mentors that I've had in my career, um, my dad was probably the one that taught me the most operationally, um, at least set those thoughts in my head. And then I've expounded upon that as I've, you know, worked with other CFOs that have really um, helped me understand the 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 role, um, the weight of the role, and the things and the authority that comes with the role, but also how to most uh, be most um, beneficial to the organization and the company that you support. John, thank, I, I did interrupt you there, so forgive me. And uh, I know that uh, the experiences that prepared you for a CFO role didn't end in uh, high school. So uh, please, if you wouldn't mind, what 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 some uh, what are some other experiences you'd like to share with us? Well, like I was saying, I, you know, I, I think of the CFO role and those three categories. You know, operationally, um, I've worked with some great. Um, general managers and uh, business unit leaders. And what I found is that the ones that would actually share with me the insights about, you know, what they were being held accountable for and what, you know, so, so for instance, one GM that I worked with, he was responsible for expanding, you know, all of them have this, but, you know, expanding the revenue associated with one of our product lines. We had a a consumables and, and services business and, because that was a big uh, priority for him, he and, and I developed a very good working relationship with him. We worked together to think about how we could change things like pricing and deal with you know some of the competitors that were undercutting us and figure which ones could we be more price sensitive to, which ones could we be less price sensitive to, and you know and and deal with both the you know the price and the unit volumes to come to a, a conclusion. So operationally. You know, that side of being a CFO, you know, I don't get quite into those details today because I'm looking at my staff to do that, but it's developing staff and helping them think through it um, in in those processes. And then when when they come to you with a proposal on how you might deal with those things, it's it's being able to make sure that they had walked through that process and that there was alignment between the financial analysis and the general managers or the product managers, whatever the case may be, uh, ambitions, objectives, goals. So, you know, it's it's learning from CFOs and finance mentors in the past that kind of helped me understand operationally what, what the job looks like. From a leadership perspective, it was watching, and it's both the good and the bad. I had I had one one manager at one time who 
was very smart and um, was, you know, well, politically well connected. But there were times when he would pull me and some of the, the senior most staff together and kind of expound upon a theoretical topic. And at the end of it, the group of us would kind of walk out of the meeting and look at each other and say, do you know what he just said? And we all kind of weren't sure. And so from a leadership perspective, I, I learned from that, that my job is to make sure that my staff have clarity that's actionable um, and, and that they don't walk out of room. So my, one of my objectives is when I conclude a meeting, sometimes I get redundant in the way that I manage the meetings, but is that when they walk out of the meeting, I'm, I'm not worried that my staff are sitting there going, I have no idea what John just asked us to do, but you know, I, I got a few ideas, maybe let's go see if it works. And then two weeks later, they come back and I'm, I'm you know, re-spinning it. So, you know, one of them was a leadership, like how to provide clarity, remove roadblocks for my staff. Other ones, I saw great examples of people that would, have a great accountability system that would say, we have staff meetings on this cadence. We, I meet with each of my staff on this cadence. We have all hands meetings with, you know, the broader finance organization to make sure that they see the leadership of the finance organization um, and the objectives, um, the, you know, the goals that we're working towards, the culture that we want to develop. So from a leadership, having a very clear view of what that might look like. And then, you know, others have been, you know, really helpful in teaching me how to be an executive. You know, thing, you know, people don't wake up in the morning and uh, or, or just grow up and immediately know what it's like to be an executive and make difficult decisions. And so, uh, and, 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 and looking at the CFO role, not just as the finance executive, right? And all I do is I came, come to it with a finance perspective, but you know, the, the better CFOs that I've worked with have been the ones that understood their job first and foremost as an executive of the company. And sometimes what, it, what was most important for the company wasn't the financial approach that we were taking. It was what is the long-term trajectory of the company? What is the status of the technology? What is the status of our customers? What is the status of um, the market that we're in? And, and, and thinking about those things, yes, with a financial perspective, but not with it as the overriding principle of that decision as being an executive. So I do try to think about each one of my, you know, each one of my activities in kind of those three veins. And I find that it helps provide clarity and, and helps me allocate my time between, you know, the executive job is there a hundred percent of the time you've, you've, you always have to allocate time. And sometimes those are the most inconvenient parts of your job, but the leadership and the operational sides, knowing where your organization is in it, in your long-term trajectory for the organization and deciding how much time should I be focusing on leadership and culture development and how much time should I be focusing on operational prowess and expertise? Um, you know, those, those are the things I've learned from people and tried to implement as, you know, I've, uh, in, I'm now in my second CFO role. Yeah, and I, I just want to point out that turn back the clock uh, a little more than 20 years, 
if I may mention this, and you were a finance manager at Seagate Technology, you know, a technology company many of us were quite familiar with way back when in the disk drive era. It looks like you largely built your career in the Bay Area. And I always like to point out uh, when an executive has built their made an investment of years at different companies. And that's exactly what you did at Riverbed Technologies, where you uh, ascended into the CFO role uh, for the first time. Uh, you were you made an investment of six years there. And before that, you were at Lamb Research uh, for more than 10 years, where, again, you, you entered the VP ranks. Um, so it's, it's pretty clear how you made this steady climb upward. Um, just for our listeners, I want to point that out. And uh, just to, regarding Seagate, um, uh, just an interesting place to begin a career, uh, a company that uh, way back when certainly grabbed a lot of headlines and had sort of a, a notorious CEO. Yeah, I think what happened with Seagate is they were they went private for a period of time, and I think that's when they fell off the radar. So I think uh, back in the day when I was there, it was a publicly traded company, and you know disk drives were still you know the only way to um, maintain it. it it started to be challenging because you could get more and more uh, memory on smaller and smaller disks and and there was just a lot of competition in that space but i think at one point seagates there was this view that seagates component parts were worth more than its stock price and so you know that's perfect uh, combination for you know a, a private equity or other types of alternative investment strategies. I think they came in and, and management took it private with a private equity firm, spun out parts of, of what was then Seagate and then reemerged. So I believe they're still, I haven't followed them very closely, but I believe they're still, um, they might be publicly traded still, but um, kind of with a different emphasis now. And I do think solid state and disk drives are still part of their business, but. Okay. Well, thank you uh, for updating us here. I appreciate that, John. And certainly uh, we want to ask you maybe one or two more career-related questions, but right now we want to find out about Aveta and uh, tell us what this company does. I see it's based in Utah, so perhaps there was a, a relocation involved. What does it do and, and what are its offerings about? Sure. So yeah, my uh, from the time I was in high school to until about a year ago, my entire career has been in the Bay Area, as you kind of just outlined from um, kind of my resume. But uh, uh, for, for a number of personal reasons, I actually decided um, I wanted to move to Utah, uh, had some family reasons to, to want to do that. And uh, But I didn't want to move just because I wanted to, you know, change of scenery. So I really uh, spent some time, uh, had had been approached by a number of different companies over the course of the year or two before I actually made the move and had really developed some criteria about what would, would be interesting for me to, you know, both make the geographic move, but also be a company that I would be happy that I'd, I'd made that geographic move for. And Aveta kind of uh, punched all the buttons for me, um, you know, in, in many respects, um, it, although it's a tech company, it's it, it started out as basically a compliance-related company that helped um, helped large clients make sure vet their their vendors, make sure that their their suppliers were um, compliant with you know health and safety regulations. It really started out as an EHNS type uh, company, um, and. And then over time, it had developed a software platform to kind of house all this information and as a repository. And then um, it eventually pivoted completely to be a SaaS platform. And about a year and a half ago, 
they did it had completed a complete rewrite of their SaaS platform. And so about the time I was joining, I was, uh, you know, I had found number one, the company was had been growing from a relatively smallish base, uh, but started growing quite rapidly um, as it had pivoted to the SaaS approach. They had just completed a, a, a very uh, uh, in-depth rewrite of their technology platform, which makes it much more scalable, uh, much more uh, feature-rich, uh, better to uh, add additional applications and, and, and interact with other applications because it is now becoming more about how your SaaS platform can interact and communicate with other SaaS platforms and you know pull and share data across uh, those types of activities. So you know just had a much more uh, technology forward thinking approach. Um, and it's in a real interesting white space. Um, you know, supply chain management. When I was at LAM, I was I spent some of my time over uh, our supply chain, and at the time it was a couple hundred million dollar supply chain. I think now that same uh, department is over a billion dollars a year of just supply chain management, uh, maybe multiple billions of dollars. Um, but from my time even at LAM, I recognized that we internally through this, you know, the procurement supply chain te team would spend a lot of time making sure that our suppliers were compliant with certain, uh, not just the technical specs of the product, but how they were building it, you know, as the Do Frank Dodd or Dodd Frank, whichever version, whichever way it's, it's said, as that became more, you know, knowing more about where your supply chain is coming from, what your component parts are, um, just visibility into those types of things have become more and more, and you know, I know we're going to talk about this a little bit later, Jack, or I suspect we will. Uh, you know, the COVID situation. Frankly, this is going to make supply chains even more important for you know large companies because I think we've found um, that this global supply chain that has been kind of migrating over the last 20 years, um, there there clearly are some challenges and weaknesses that have been uncovered through this COVID uh, crisis that we're in right now, and I and I think we're going to find, you know, one of the long-term effects of this is going to be a higher scrutiny um, on our supply chains. Uh, you know, you, you've, there's already, already been a pivot towards this idea of environmental sustainability and governance um, within like board purviews um, and supply chain is front and center in a lot of that environmental sustainability and governance, um, the ESG um, uh issues that that companies are facing and so Aveda sits in this really nice spot where today most of their of supply chain kind of risk management and which is what we consider ourselves part of the CS, uh, SCRM um, is you know that that part of the business is mainly in-house and and so we've got lots of white space our biggest competitors frankly are supply chains that just want to do it in their homegrown solution. And so, uh, you know, when I looked at Aveda with the experience that I'd have with uh, supply chains in the past, um, the understanding of this new technology and platform that they had developed, the growth that they were experiencing, I think the forward thinking that was going on at the company, just all that excited me, the culture of the company, all of that kind of excited me. And it hit a lot of buttons for me um, as a company that I'd want to be part of. Uh, uh, part of. And so, um, you know, to give you a little bit more flavor, we at, at Aveda, we support 
over 300 blue chip large scale customers and we connect those 300 plus blue chip uh, customers to over 90,000 um, suppliers. So these are the key suppliers and some of them are really small suppliers um, that uh, you know might just work at one of their sites and you know some of our big companies are like uh, uh, Shell, Verizon, JLL, you know, all, all these different types of companies that have uh, sometimes hundreds of sites that they are supporting. And, you know, the, the supplier might be geographically tied to one site, but they want to make sure that when that supplier shows up on their job site, that the supplier has proper insurance, has proper training, um, and, and has, uh, you know, employees that have uh, met certain standards and criteria. And so we help maintain that database for those large clients and and we can tailor it to whatever spe specific needs they might have for their, their um, company. Um, and some of those can be vertical specific needs and some of them can be just company specific needs. So we kind of help all those uh, uh, in all those situations. So you arrived, I think, uh, last year, 2019, and Correct. what uh, did you have to reorganize finance? What uh, what did you find upon your arrival, and what steps did you take? So the finance team I I had or I I inherited was actually a fairly strong team, but under resourced and had some notable. Uh, both capability and systems constraints. And so I, I really, you know, you can think about it in those three categories, right? What are the resources? What are the capabilities? And what are the systems? Um, and what I, what I, you know, you know, you, you usually spend your first um, month just trying to figure out who's doing what to whom and why they're doing it. Um, and, you know, short, and then shortly thereafter, I, I developed kind of a, here's where I think we're, we have challenges and resources. Here's where I think we have challenges and capabilities. And here's where I think we have challenges in the systems. When I was hired, they had already told me we had challenges in both resources and systems um, and had been working on, on what they wanted to do there, but hadn't really pulled the trigger until they had brought a CFO on board. So those two are somewhat um, identified for me, though I did change the, the view of the, those two slightly after uh, performing my own assessment. Um, but the capabilities was an, uh, an area that they hadn't, you know, really looked at, which isn't surprising given that, you know, a, a company that hadn't had a CFO for a little while, um, you know, and it was more how the general manager thought of it. They didn't know how to ask questions around tax and treasury, and stock administration and things like that, um, which I had, you know, previous experience with. And so I, I sat down and I, I went through those kind of three categories and we have put together a roadmap for where we want our systems to go. Um, we've put together a roadmap for what we want to do with resources. And probably the thing that I've added the most is certain capabilities uh, in, in particular in the three areas that I just mentioned. Like, and, and it didn't necessarily mean that I needed to add res resources to develop capability in tax and treasury and stock admin, which were the three areas that um, I, I felt like we needed more capability. It was just organizing the team different. So you could say there was some minor restructuring going on in, in what I've done subsequent, but it's not such that I like in mass change people's jobs or, you know, stopped 
certain types of work. It was just like, hey, we're spending too much time on these activities, not enough on these. Who's right? Who's the right person to help um, with this? We did bring on, you know, one resources resource to help in some of that, but it wasn't just a just plug a plug a hole with a body um, approach. It was kind of thinking all three of those areas kind of in a comprehensive way. Was the was the organization producing the numbers, the measures that you required to understand how the company was performing? Did you have the KPIs you needed, or did you have to begin to drill down in one area to get a better fix on something? Um, we definitely had areas that we were lacking. Um, you know, the company had just a, uh, shortly before I started had completed an acquisition of a relatively large. Uh, company uh, by scale, it's about 20 to 30% the size of what Aveda was on a standalone basis. Um, and, you know, with that, they were, this finance team had been struggling just to deal with that integration. And so, you know, we were, you know, having some struggles with just closing the books, uh, definitely providing KPIs timely. Um, I, you know, I'm happy to say that we turned that around in relatively short order. Um, in, in some of that just has to do with leadership and some of it has to do with they had broken through some of the problems that, that happened early on. So I can't take full credit for, for the achievement, but, you know, I think the leadership and the focus, um, helped move the ball forward more quickly. And then, um, you know, to get to some of the, the next, next level down KPIs, Part of that's going to be uh, some of our systems roadmap, um, and it's and it's less about knowing what the KPIs are and more about getting them timely and uh, being confident in the veracity, uh, uh, you know, the accuracy and the completeness of it. Um, you know, the cool thing about being part of a SaaS company is we have so much data at our disposal; it's almost um, overwhelming at times um, how much data we have and. Almost any question you ask, we can probably get to the data, but it's figuring out how to aggregate it in a digestible way, index it properly, um, ask the right questions, and then figure out how to, you know, assemble it in a timely fashion in a way that management can can you know learn from and and be an, a, a leading indicator or at least a close lagging indicator. So, so uh, help us out here. What are those top of mind metrics? What are you looking at? I, I gotta believe, I know it's return, uh, renewable revenues, but how do you look at that really? Is that something you pay attention to uh, daily? Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, yeah, you know, for SaaS companies, recurring revenue is, is you know, the, the holy grail, I guess, of a metric that, you know, all SaaS companies look at. But we, you know, we look at um, a number of additional metrics and some of it is unique to, you know, Aveda's situation. So we are looking at like connections, like for each of our clients, how many suppliers are they connected to in this concept of nodal density? Like some clients um, have a bunch of singular connections because those those suppliers are unique only to that client. Other clients um, might be connected to one of our, to a supplier and that supplier might be connected to three or four other of our clients. And all of a sudden, you know, that that supplier becomes a much more important um, uh, supplier to us just because of the number of connections that they have. So, you know, connections between, you know, number of connections between customers, uh, clients and suppliers uh, or their suppliers, you know, the revenue per supplier, going back to that concept of each supplier, depending on 
uh, how many people they're connected to can generate, you know, assess how much revenue we're, we're getting. Uh, ideas of activations of current of new new suppliers and clients, right? How many of those are activating? Because it's one thing to sign up a client and say, "Hey, we want you to help us manage our supply chain." It's another thing to have their supply chain actively signed up into our network to do it. So we're looking at new activations, um, you know, retention rates and renewal rates. Um, clearly, are important metrics for us, and then. You know, I, we spend time, it's not quite, not so much a finance metric, but a metric that, you know, we need to be aware of because it has, you know, broad implications on on the financials of the company, which is things like customer support metrics, resolution on the first call, abandonment rates, all those things have cost implications, right? If you're better at resolving problems early and you have fewer abandonment rates, you don't need as much infrastructure from, you know, you know, phone and chat availability and, and different things um, to support your your um, your customers. So, you know, those are those are some examples of things that we look at. So for this next question, I just want to timestamp this because uh, we're recording this in April. COVID-19, the, its impact on business is quite evident. Uh, looking forward, uh, modeling is so uh, key to everything uh uh, finance leadership is is focused on these days. Uh, cash forecasting. Uh, can can you tell us a little bit about uh, your approach to cash forecasting at this unique place in time, this challenging time? Yeah, absolutely. You know, um, up in uh, cash cash forecasting, you know, is always a an important thing to be doing. But you know, depending on where you are in your business cycle and kind of the health of your balance sheet. Um, you know, it takes on higher priority or lower priority. I would say up until this recent COVID crisis, cash forecasting was kind of a secondary thing, something we thought about and looked at, but wasn't kind of, you know, when you sat down with the board of directors and set, and they wanted to know what's going on, our cash forecast wasn't the first thing out of their mouth and, and sometimes not even, you know, it was like in an appendix type discussion. Um, but, you know, our last board meeting, obviously, that was something that became front and center. Um, and so, uh, for us, you know, we're doing a lot of modeling around, you know, what we can, what we think will happen to our recurring revenue, what will happen to our renewal rates, um, what will happen to our new activations. All those metrics that I just shared with you feed into how we think about our cash model. And then, obviously, looking at your spending side of the equation, which is one that you have clearly the most control over. So, you know, for us, what what we've done in the last uh, couple of weeks is we've spent some time doing top top line modeling, um, looking at the verticals that we're exposed to. The You know, the beautif- beautiful thing is we have exposure to many, many verticals, and some verticals are going to come out of this just fine. Some verticals are going to actually grow as a result of this, and other verticals are going to be hit pretty hard. And so, you know, again, going back to that statement of the beautiful thing about a SaaS company is we have more data than we can shake a stick at. Um, So we've been harvesting some of that data and looking at, you know, our business by vertical and trying to get a sense of which of the verticals are going to have the biggest challenge on renewal rates, which ones are, you know, going to be impacted, you know, the typical death, divorce, and um, marriage, right? Those things are all what happens to, you know, your installed base, right? So, you know, thinking through, 
you know, which verticals are going to be impacted most by that type of activity. And then looking at our exposure in a kind of monthly, quarterly basis, and then projecting that out over a period of time, and then saying, where do we think we, we're going to see, you know, retention risk? Where do we think we see activation growth? All of the above, uh, and that yields, and we've done multiple scenarios on that, and that yields kind of an outcome that says, here's kind of the high end and the low end of the range that we, you know, think. I hate to use the term worst case because, you know, the worst case is always worse than you can conceive of, but we're trying to, you know, be pretty conservative in our lower end cases. And then we look at what the cost profiles uh, we would need to manage to maintain our, you know, our um, key metrics of profitability, um, you know, things that have to do with our spending, our debt covenants and things like that. So we've spent a lot of time over the last couple of weeks doing that. And, you know, this is going to be an ongoing um, evolution. But the nice thing is, is we have a stake in the ground that has certain um, as estimates that we've assumptions that we've set up, you know, somewhat based on empirical data. And then as this crisis plays itself out, both the length and the depth of the of the challenge, um, we will revise those models and adjust accordingly. Now, we've begun to ask whether CFOs are communicating differently with uh, with their stakeholders and with, with the management team. Are there more frequent meetings or what would you tell us in terms of how you've felt compelled to update them and help the organization uh, prioritize on what matters? Yeah, I would say, you know, the good news is I think we had um, – reasonably good cadence um, established with, you know, kind of corporate interactions of the executive team and developing information kind of from the, you know, ground up, like the people that are interacting and dealing with the, the things that are driving that top line. Um, so it's, it, it, we, we have af absolutely added a few new metrics that we're monitoring now more operationally, frankly, than financial. Um, but those financial metrics I mean, those operational metrics will lead to certain financial metrics that um, they they are derivative that that they cause derivative results on, and so you know we we've I wouldn't say we've repurposed meetings, but it's become more of a focus of meetings when we're talking about you know what is going on with um, the renewal rates, what's going on with customer calls, is how are volumes looking. Um, and how how do, how is that changing, and what what could that tell us about you know future billings? Um, and then obviously I'm having uh, cost conversations with all of the executives about their organizations because what we thought we wanted to spend you know remember this is a, a company that's been growing at a healthy clip, and so we had ambitions to you know develop additional products, develop additional features in our SaaS platform to to make us even more differentiated than you know our competitors and make us more appealing for uh, you know suppliers or these big clients to hand over their supply chain management kind of or allow us to help them with their supply chain management and some of that is giving features that they find important that they might you know have in in-house that we might not have yet built out so this year it was all about trying to build those things out and with this uh, covid crisis right now it's been a little bit more like, all right, what are the core things that we really have to do excellently right now? 
Um, and then what are the next features that we want to invest in, but realizing that investment's going to be more predicated on what we can afford than kind of this growth trajectory that we had, you know, fully expected for this year. So, you know, I'd like to think that we still have the opportunity to grow this year, but I don't think it'll be nearly the same robust growth that we would have expected two months ago. Understood. Well, uh, thank you for uh, answering our questions. We, we always like to ask for a finance strategic moment. Again, this is sometime during the course of your career. You were able to see an opportunity or risk just given your lines of sight into the organization as a finance executive. You've had so many of these over the years. We're asking for just one. <laughs> what comes to mind? Well, you know, the one that I look back on that seemed to have the most impact and it, it both changed the way I think the companies um, it improved the company's fortunes um, and also something I learned quite a bit from was uh, I, I won't name the company but um, many years ago let's put it that way um, I was one of the senior most executives uh, finance executives at a company and it was like a Saturday morning um, we had been informed a week or so earlier that the company was, uh, highly uh, was uh, that the company I was working for was considering a rather significant acquisition uh, to take place. And as these things do, um, you know, uh, the bankers have put together this this book um, on, you know, how the transaction might go down. And I was kind of told on a Thursday or Friday, hey, the three of us, me and the CFO and one other finance executive, we are all coming in on Saturday morning and we were going to go scrub through this, this book because not very many people knew what was going on. And we were going to look at the impacts associated with this specific acquisition. And so there I was, you know, Saturday morning, you know, office is completely empty. Just three of us kind of sitting uh, next to each other. And I was given the responsibility to look through what the kind of balance sheet of this new company was, what were what were the cash implications, um, obligations and liabilities associated with uh, this acquisition. And frankly, I you know went through this 120 page plus book uh, that the bankers had put together and there's a few sections that I really honed in on. Um, and I wasn't particularly enamored with with what I ha had seen. I, I felt like uh, the way the transaction was being structured, um, and and remember, this is back in the day when all deals that were being done in Silicon Valley were kind of cash debt finance deals. There wasn't the idea of an equity structure. I don't know what I think equity financing had kind of preceded the internet bubble, and then post internet, it was kind of like you never do equity financing it's all debt and so uh, it had kind of been the way that you know the bankers had positioned it it was like this is how we do it today and i just looked at it and i felt like you know a couple things i concluded in my analysis was one um the company i was working for was taking on almost all of the risk of the transaction that the main benefactors of the transaction were going to be the shareholders of the other company and the bankers and I kind of put together an analysis and and you know came came back together with the, my CFO and the other finance executive that I was working with and I just kind of outlined here's why I don't think this is a great I'm not really excited about what this does to our you know cash flow the the risk to our balance sheet um, 
And as a result, um, we spent a couple hours that afternoon, by this time it was the afternoon, kind of trying to poke holes in the two different alternatives. And um, ultimately, the three of us were came to the same opinion that an equity transaction made the most sense for the company. Um, but you know, just the three of us coming to that doesn't matter because the next day the bankers were supposed to present this whole concept to our board of directors. And so we spent the next couple hours getting bankers on board and they had their own reservations and concerns, but eventually we kind of got everyone on the same page and um, you know, Fast forward a few months, the transaction happens the way it was supposed, the way we had articulated, um, and I think in the end, actually, ever all parties came out of that, you know, better off. I think the shareholders of the company I was working for came out great. The shareholders of the company that was acquired, if they stuck with the stock, came out really, really well, and the bankers made their fair share of money, not more, not less, but, uh, you know, sometimes bankers get a bigger slice of that pie than, than frankly they should. But, um, so those bankers on the phone that might, or on this call that might listen, um, my apologies, but that's my personal view anyway. Um, so, you know, what did I learn from that? Uh, and why was it a, an important moment? Number one, it, the relationships that I developed with those two executives, um, I was able to lean on that and they were able to trust me. And in the end, the three of us came up with a better solution than we would have individually. Um, and two, I, you know, sometimes we think lawyers and bankers and, you know, executives and boards are no more than, than they do and are, are more um, informed than they are. But the fact is, is as a finance executive, Sometimes we need to challenge the status quo. Sometimes we need to, you know, ask the, the question that, you know, and it's not about being a contrarian in these situations, though sometimes that's the role that we have to take, but it's about saying, why is this have to be this way, right? Not, and be willing to say, hey, I, I'm, I think I'm a reasonably smart person. I think I've been trained reasonably well in, the, you know, financial analysis and how, you know, businesses gets run. And I have an opinion that could ultimately um, help inform a better decision than you know what that group of you know lawyers, bankers, boards, and things like that might have said. So um, you know, and and in my work with boards uh, over the course of my career, um, both as a CFO and and in prior to that, uh, that was an important learning for me um, on how to interact with that type of uh, in, in that environment with the, when the stakes are are significant. When we return, John Thieler will be entering the mentoring round with us after this. The business landscape is changing quickly. As the pressure to manage expenses efficiently and strategically increases, you need solutions that not only help drive down costs and improve efficiencies, but meet the changing needs of your business. At U.S. Bank, we can help. We'll work with you to uncover your specific payment challenges and bring you proactive and innovative solutions and strategies that help you meet the financial goals of your organization. Our commitment to doing the right thing for our customers has earned us the designation of one of the world's most ethical companies from the Ethisphere Institute for six years in a row. 
To learn more, visit us at usbpayment.com. We're back with John Thieler. We're entering the mentoring round. John, we're going to begin by asking you to look back once again. And this time, we're going to go back to, I believe, Riverbed uh, was the name of the company, where you stepped into the CFO role for the very first time. There had to have been something, some piece of information, some piece of advice. Uh, when you think back to that first month, that first week uh, in the CFO office, holding all the responsibility, uh, that you wish, gee, I wish I knew <laughs> at that place in time this. Uh, is anything uh, come to mind when I ask for that that piece of advice? You could go back in time and whisper this in your ear if you wanted to. Uh, what would that have been? Well, um, I think I generally knew what I'm about ready to share with you at that time, but it became super apparent to me um, shortly after. So I had watched uh, previous CFOs, uh, you know, pretty closely as to how they handled certain things. And the thing that I respected about a number of them is, you know, they knew when to ask for advice and they knew when their, what their limits were. And I think, you know, becoming comfortable in the CFO role, probably the thing that I, I had to do and, and the advice that I would give to someone is, you know, seek advice from professionals on certain technical issues. You know, there's this, this almost view that, oh, you've, you've been the CFO, you've been around 20 years, you know, lots of stuff. And so it, on any given topic, um, you know, you probably have a, a thoughtful opinion. And, you know, I'd like to say I'm knowledgeable about lots of things, but there is no way that as a CFO, you can be knowledgeable about all the techni technical issues that are out there. And so know, know when to ask for, you know, the right technical professional advice on certain things. And, you know, you got to know how to kick the tires and make sure that they're not, you know, um, you know, blowing smoke at you, but, um, you know, and that's an important skill to learn, but being confident and, and, and actually being self, I guess, uh, self-confident enough to know that you don't know everything and not feeling like you're diminishing your, your role by saying, I need help here. Um, and so that, that's actually one of the things that's a little daunting when you first become a CFO, because there is this expectation that you, you should know more than maybe you do. Um, but what I found is if I surrounded myself with the right team um, that had the right capable uh, capabilities and the, and, and in addition, they had insights into the right professional organizations, whether they be, you know, accounting firms, law firms, valuation firms, um, you know, you don't want to, blow all your money on those things because those people will sell you consulting gigs all day long, but know when to pull them in and get the advice so that you can actually make the best decisions and, and lead your company in, in the best way possible. So, you know, if I think back, that's probably something that it took me a little while to get comfortable, comfortable with um, that I probably wish I'd been more comfortable with at the onset. Have have recruiters played a role in uh, some of your job transitions in the past? Absolutely. Um, I would say, you know, fortunately, fortunately for me, many of the jobs that I have taken have been almost uh, going to work for someone that I had had developed a relationship with previously. Um, but uh, 
there have been two roles that I've taken, my role at Aveda and my role at LAM Research, um, both of which were um, only made known to me as a result of relationships with recruiters. And, you know, I've, I, I actually have a very pretty consistent and ongoing relationship with a lot of what I consider, you know, top tier recruiting firms. Um, and the main reason I have it is because I, I'm willing to pick up the phone and invest time with them, right? Off, more often than not, I don't have a candidate to suggest to them for the recruit and I'm not looking for a job, right? But because I'm willing to just entertain those conversations when those opportunities do arise, um, I, I I don't feel sheepish about calling them and saying, yeah, I know I've never talked to you before. Or, you know, last time I talked to you was, you know, five years ago and, and it's only in, in times of need that I, you know, actually reach out to you. They actually appreciate it. That that personal relationship can matter in, in the long-term uh, progression of, of your, your opportunities. Is there a personal habit or part of your daily routine uh, that uh, over time has contributed to your professional success in some way? Oh, I wish I had some sage advice on this one. Um, to me, the most important thing that you can do on a daily basis is find time to turn off your brain um, and not, you know, we have a job as a CFO, you know, and even in my other roles in finance that are almost never ending. There's always some work to do and you can get consumed with the job. So for me, I mean, I'll give you a couple things that I do do, but I wouldn't say any one of them, um, you know, is, is what uh, has been a, a key factor for me, but turning off your brain and doing things like, um, you know, outdoor activities occasionally, um, shoot, playing, playing card games, board games with my family. Occasionally I'll, I'll get on, on, uh, the internet and play a, vi a video game with my brothers, right? It's just something that causes me to not be completely focused on what's going on, you know, with my job, what's the next thing, what's going on tomorrow. So I, 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 for me, it's partly just learning to turn off your brain. I, I think that's probably something I learned from my wife more than anything where, you know, she noticed that I would come home and just be you know, still focused on work. And she kind of would encourage me to, hey, take some time and don't worry about it. And, you know, it's easy to say, you don't understand. I've got all these things going on. And the answer is, is she might not understand, but she's still right. Um, so, uh, and I said that just so that when she listens, she, she knows she's got to get plugged <laughs> in here. <laughs> all right. We're going to, uh, I'm sorry, I've kept you on. I, I've thrown quite a few extra questions your way, but thank you uh, for answering them. I want to, uh, wrap up and we're going to ask you our final question. And again, this is in this, uh, this new world that we all live in uh, with COVID-19 and the pandemic still part of our lives. Uh, as you look forward over the next 12 months, what are your priorities now? We know they've changed from just uh, 60 days ago, but what are they today? What are those priorities as a finance leader that you have? Yeah. So we touched on a fair number of these earlier, Jack. Um, but you know, like I said, we, we are looking at our verticals and trying to uh, see uh, you know, how they might uh, be impacted in different differing ways and and how that would ultimately impact our business but one of the things that we're doing at Aveda to you know to try to be basically help make this process 
you know, less or this crisis less impactful on on our customers is we've been actually thinking of ways that number one, we can provide them more information about Aveta. So, you know, Aveta has a COVID response website that provides a whole bunch of information because remember we're supporting 95,000 suppliers. Um, so, you know, part of it is that, uh, but you know, how we're looking out forward, it's making sure that our, we have the cash resources so that if we need to defer payments for some of these customers, um, rather than collect it all up front, which is our normal pattern, you know, is that something that we would do for certain verticals and certain situations? Yes. Might we consider some one-time discounts to make it so that the cost, you know, and, and this is what a lot of companies, I, I would, you know, Avet is not the only one I was just reading today, you know, that auto insurance companies are going to be refunding money uh, premiums to their um, customers because they realize that, you know, traffic is way down and accidents are down. And as a result, you know, the money that they were collecting for premiums is more than what they should reasonably expect. And so, you know, those types of thoughtful things that a company can do to help their customers get through this, especially companies that are more financially stable, that's the number one, it's the right thing to do. And number two, it's just good business because a year, two years from now, when things are hopefully in a recovery mode. They'll remember the they'll remember the companies that that were you know willing to assist and 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 went the extra mile to to do that. So you know those are those are the things we're doing. Obviously, as as a fiduciary of the company, we're, we got to keep track of you know cash flow and, and expense management. But we're doing that with the eye towards how do we help our customer. John Thieler, thank you for joining us on CFO Thought Leader. Thank you for having me, Jack, and uh, uh, hope to uh, chat with you again. Yes, likewise, John. Thank you for the time. Hello, listeners. Do us a favor. Be certain to subscribe to CFO Thought Leader on Apple Podcasts, or if you're an Android user, check us out on Spotify or Google Play. If you like the show, please recommend it to a friend. Oh, and by the way, the CFO Yearbook 2021 Print Edition debuts on Amazon this quarter, featuring 100 profiles of finance leaders from our 2020 season. Would you like to learn more about our CFO guests? Order the CFO Yearbook 2021. Thank you for supporting our efforts to bring you career journeys of CFOs driving change. We'll be back with another episode very soon. Thank you for listening.